Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm your host, Brandy, and this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Thank you for being here, friends, for Season 3, Episode 17, The Eyeball Killer Case with John Matthews. Joining me today for a special episode of Texas Wine and True Crime is my friend, John Matthews. John is an award-winning winemaker and the owner of Casaro Winery and Vineyards right here in Ovilla, Texas. John is a veteran law enforcement officer and former chief of police. For over two decades, he has served as a law enforcement analyst for both CNN and Fox News. He's been on notable network shows like CBS News and Good Morning America. He's the author of multiple books, including the true crime story, The Eyeball Killer. John gives a firsthand account of his capture of Dallas's first serial killer. He also penned Police Perspective, Life in the Beat, an anthology of his Texas Press Association winning newspaper columns. He has appeared on numerous television shows on Discovery, Oxygen Network, and Discovery ID, and served as a technical advisor and movie producer. He's been married to his wife, Jill, for nearly 25 years and has six children. John, welcome and thank you for being here today. Thank you, Brandy. I'm glad to be here. So glad to be here. There's so much to talk about. Your extensive career in law enforcement. You're an author, an analyst. You own a winery. I don't know how you do it all, John. It's the best of every world, let me tell you. Getting to uh, serve the citizens, work in law enforcement, and now make wine and watching them enjoy it. Fantastic. Yeah. I think you're living your best life, John. It is. It's great. It <laughs> and I'm fantastic. living mine today in your beautiful winery, which I can't wait to share with our listeners. Okay, so we're fortunate enough to be in person at your beautiful winery, sipping wine and talking some crime. We are here to discuss the case of Charles Albright a.k.a. The Eyeball Killer. You made the arrest in this case. You wrote a book about this case. And I know our listeners are really just going to enjoy you diving into this. Um, and they're, they're just going to soak in all these details that you have to share. Um, now, I would normally be telling the story, but John, this is your story to tell today. I would love to start by you going back and just painting a picture for us of the area where you patrolled and how dangerous was this part of Dallas at the time? Well, let me tell you, the area is North Oak Cliff, just south of the Trinity River in Dallas. It's the 1990s. We were still in the middle of the crack cocaine epidemic. We had gangs, literally, that roamed the streets and were committing crimes everywhere. Um, it's an area that has been infamous for decades. North Oak Cliff is also the home to uh, Bonnie and Clyde. It's where Clyde was buried. Uh, it's where Lee Harvey Oswald lived uh, during the Kennedy assassination. It's where Officer Tippett was killed during the uh, Kennedy assassination. Um, so North Oak Cliff has been infamous for in this area for years. Now throw in a serial killer. So back in the late 80s, and early 90s, like I said, uh, gangs roamed the streets, dealt crack cocaine, prostitutes walked the streets in open daylight. And when I assumed my beat in this area along Jefferson Boulevard, I actually interviewed store owners and they said, oh, being robbed at gunpoint was just a cost of doing business. That's how bad crime was in the wow. area. And God forbid if you left your keys in the car, your car not, is not going to be there when you returned. Wow. So probably not a boring day. 
Not a boring day. And and let me tell you, in 1990, we actually set a record, a record you don't want to set in Dallas, of most homicides. We had over 500 homicides in one year. Now, compare that to today, you know, 30 years later, um, we have around 200, 250 homicides. So double the number of homicides back then. Uh, Murder was rampant in North Oak Cliff and in Dallas. Yeah. So we're here talking about someone specific, Charles Albright, um, dubbed the eyeball killer. Uh, He got his name because he removed the eyeballs of his victims. So who was Charles Albright and how did you get involved in this investigation? Well, he was a career criminal. He was a career con man. He was a typical sociopath. People in Oak Cliff knew him as a painter as a baseball player, as someone that made bats. People knew him in different lights because he was a con man and would portray different identities to different people. Once he would get close to them, though, um, those identities quickly disappeared. Uh, He lived in North Oak Cliff, really just a block or two from where Lee Harvey Oswald lived uh, in an amazing kind of twist of fate. And I became involved when his hunting ground uh, became my beat. I took over a beat in North Oak Cliff along Jefferson Boulevard. Mm -hmm. One of my primary duties was economic development. We wanted to revitalize the area. And it's hard to revitalize an area when you have open drug dealing, auto theft, rapes, robberies, and prostitutes. And so as I started working on some of the criminal problems in the area, little did I know that I had a serial killer hunting girls on my beat. Wow. So when did the the problems with North Oak Cliff begin? Was there a good time in North Oak Cliff and then something happened? Was it just the drugs, the prostitution, just the sign of the times? What what led to that area? Yeah, Oak Cliff in general had been very, very popular, a beautiful part of Dallas, Mm -hmm. lots of trees, hills, uh, very popular in the 20s and 30s. It even boomed in the 1950s and 60s. But after that, it started to deteriorate. It started to go downhill, especially along Jefferson Boulevard, which was the commercial strip in North Oak Cliff. Um, You have many, many historical homes there, Winneka Heights, beautiful, beautiful homes. Kessler Park was the home to very, very wealthy people with beautiful homes and treed lots and swimming pools. So it was a changing time in the 1980s and 1990s Mm -hmm. as the commercial part of Oak Cliff really deteriorated and city leaders knew we've got to do something something to help economic development. Mm -hmm. But with crime rampant, it's really hard to induce companies to come into that area of town. Yeah, we shared our uh, both of our passion and knowledge for economic development. I went to college for economic development, and you had a big part in this, which we'll talk about it a little bit later, of Jefferson Boulevard and just reinventing that Oak Cliff area. So let's talk about the three victims um, in this case, uh, in this particular Charles Albright case. So we have Mary Pratt, who was 33 years old, Susan Peterson, who was 27 years old, and Shirley Williams who was 45 years old. John, what happened to them at the hands of Charles Albright? And did you know them personally? 
Many of the girls I knew because we worked with the prostitutes every day. It sounds weird. You're saying, wow, you know, prostitutes is a cop, especially when you're trying to clean up an area. You're arresting them on a on an almost daily basis. You're contacting them, talking to them on a daily basis, you know, making sure that they understand you can't be working out here. You can't be robbing. You can't be dealing dope out here. So we constantly build a relationship with all of the criminals on our beat, um, and specifically, since we the emphasis was on prostitutes, we knew many of the prostitutes. Now, the three women were very, very different. Mary was a very shy, quiet girl, um, quiet to even the folks that she worked with, the drug dealers, the pimps, the prostitutes. Um, that's what she was known as, is just a shy, quiet girl. She grew up in Lancaster, just south of Dallas. Uh, Susan, exact opposite. Susan, was very outgoing, very street smart. She was a former veteran uh, in the Navy and she was a very tough girl. The other girls respected her. You know, she was kind of a leader out there. Shirley didn't work the streets as much as the other two girls. Shirley worked a lot off of Fort Worth Avenue, very close to where Clyde Barrow is is buried Mm -hmm. right now. And that's where she was picked up on the final night of her life. Um, The first two girls... um, Uh, White females, brunette hair. Shirley Williams was an African-American female. Um, So very, very different in the victims. Yeah. So um, the one thing they all had in common was their eyeballs were removed. So And not just removed, surgically removed. And there's a difference because you can be in a rage and you can be in an attack and you can gouge somebody's eyes out, right? Right. Yeah. Post-mortem. These eyeballs were removed with surgical precision. As a matter of fact, the ME didn't even realize it until during the autopsy, opening the the, uh, eyelids and seeing that they physically were not there anymore. So were besides the eyeballs being removed, was there any other connection with all three women? And some, did, were they all shot? Were they all killed a certain way? Yeah, there were several um, uh, signatures that, you know, every killer has a certain sure. sig- signature. One thing that we saw is the women were beaten. They they had been abused. They were shot. Um, and that the nature of the abuse escalated. With each victim. It wasn't as bad with Mary. It was a little worse with Susan. And it was extremely bad with Shirley. Um, Also, the women were posed in a a similar manner, uh, laid out on the street with their uh, shirts up, their breasts exposed, with their legs open wide. So they were displayed for everyone to see. And again, everything kept getting more and more magnified. With Shirley's killing, she was left totally naked, on the street, right down from an elementary school where moms and dads walk their little kids every single morning. Terrible. What is the signature of a serial killer? I know our listeners are always wondering what makes a killer, a serial killer. A serial killer is three or more victims with a cooling off period in between. And usually there are commonalities that we call signatures. So a killer will kill in a certain way. Maybe he always strangles his victim. Maybe he always manually strangles his victim. Uh, Maybe he poses them in a certain way. Uh, Maybe he, and it's a he or a she, there are female serial killers. Maybe he takes certain trinkets. He 
always takes their necklace. He always takes their ring. So there are many, many different signatures within each case. And, and police use those as they're creating a profile of the killer and to build the case against the killers. The killers want to relive the experience. And it's amazing the detail they can relive. With a, with a single ring, they can remember everything down to the to most finite detail about the victim about how she cried about how she screamed what she begged for and that is what gave him that rush that excitement to kill again and again and again so what in his background gave him the ability to remove eyeballs? Well, we think that he had done taxidermy since he was a, a small child, mm-hmm. uh, and that gave him knowledge, uh, some knowledge of anatomy. Uh, we actually found hundreds and hundreds of jars with formaldehyde and animal parts in them in his house, in his garage, in his storage building. Um, and so he had been studying anatomy for a while in the, the realm of taxidermy. Mm-hmm. And one of the theories out there of why did he take the eyes was that his mother kind of got him into taxidermy to give him a, a, a hobby. And yet she refused to pay the extra money for the eyes, because they were very, very expensive, and so none of his animals had eyes. And and it was eerily reflected years later when we found pictures that he had painted of women and their eyes were missing. Oh, that just gave me goosebumps <laughs> down my entire spine. That... Uh... So how did you close in on Charles Albright? What, what, what was bringing, you know, um, what is your research? What were you doing as research trying to find this guy on the streets? Well, I've been keeping a notebook. And, and as the murders went on, my notebook grew bigger and bigger and bigger. It started with a small notepad in my pocket. and I was jotting down notes and it turned into a large three ring binder. Where I'd go back to the office every single day and say, how is this guy getting access to the women? How is he picking them? up. How is he getting street smart women like Susan into his vehicle? Where is he taking them? Why is he taking them there? Why is he dropping the bodies in certain locations? So as you can see, the questions just keep building and building and building. And every night I'd go back and try to figure out, okay, one little piece of the puzzle. He's got to be someone that works in the area or lives in the area. He's got to be somebody that has a job or the ability to get out and roam the streets all night long. He's got to be someone that's known to the prostitutes because many of them are too street smart to get in a vehicle with somebody they don't know. They want to turn a trick in a motel or around the corner, but certainly not going to drive 20 miles away um, to to be with somebody, for, you know, to get paid for it. Um, so it was, it was just a series over a period of months. But as the murders became more frequent, I knew that we had to do something really, really quickly. Okay. So what were there, was there any witnesses ever? Did anyone ever see these girls getting in? Was he ever identified before actually being caught? Well, one witness, uh, not came forward. We actually stopped her. She was a prostitute known to us. And I believe she was there probably the night that Mary was killed. Um, uh, we stopped her one night uh, and she was covered in mud and she was bloody. She was wet. And we're like, what happened? Her name was Veronica. They called her Flaca on the street, which is skinny in Spanish. And she was a, a, a skinny female uh, young lady. And, and we said, 
said, what happened to you? And she said, some guy tried to kill me. He was going to shoot me. I ran away. I hid in a, in a drainage pipe. And really, it, it kind of was, you know, made sense. But she was known as a hardcore drug addict. She was very scattered brained. She could rarely keep a story together. And so when you're hearing a story like that, would you know who he is? No. Do you know where you were? No. Do you know? She couldn't give the details. She kind of gave the details um, that stayed with her. But the other details, for whatever reason, maybe she didn't want to reveal him. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was a regular, which is a trick that they see on a regular basis and usually pays them really well. And a lot of the prostitutes protect that because that's their bread and butter. That's where they get their money from. Right. So what... um what was going on in Charles Albright's life at the time? Was he married? Was he in a committed relationship? Did he have children? How was he picking these prostitutes up and and having access to them? I would assume in the middle of the night or late night hours. How was he able to do that? Yeah, he had been divorced and was living uh, with a woman, a kind of a common law wife uh, in North Oak Cliff. And his job I say job, was uh, for the Dallas Morning News uh, throwing newspapers during the middle of the night so people would have them in the morning. And so he had an excuse to be out driving all night long. One of the other things we're trying to figure out is where is he getting all of this cash? Because the prostitutes, they don't take checks. Right. They don't right. take credit cards, right? right. You know? Right. Um, so where was he getting this money? He had to have access to money. He had to be living in the area. So again, that notebook kept growing and growing with questions and a few answers. So how did you end up closing in on him? What kind of made the light bulb go off? How how often were you talking to these different prostitutes? How long was the investigation for? Well, the first uh, homicide occurred in December of 1990. Uh, Susan was killed in February, just a couple months later. Um, he was getting more manic. Uh, Sh- uh, Shirley was killed in March. So the timetable, the cooling shortening off period up. was shortening. And so we knew th- we've got to do something about this, yeah. right? This guy is getting bolder. He's getting more violent and the crimes are getting closer. We have no idea what the body count is going to get up to. Well, back then in the early 90s, you know, we still really didn't have the internet. Computers were fairly new, fairly limited. And years before, I had caught a bank robber. And I had caught him in kind of a unique way. Uh, He had fled the scene. He had shot a guard at the bank. um, And I called one of my friends who uh, I worked with on the streets. He got transferred to dispatch. And I said, I have a partial plate. Can you just play around, see if you can find anything on this partial plate? And I read it to him and he checked parking tickets and it matched a partial plate on a on a parking ticket. And um, I was able to to figure out that that the parking ticket occurred not very long before that the address on there was a good address, went to that address um, and and actually caught him inside with his partner, with the money. He had actually been shot also in the exchange of gunfire and where it was able to talk everybody out of the apartment and got accommodation for it. So that was kind of my introductory to what, how can computers help us? So I started running everything that I could think of in the Dallas computer system and I came up empty. 
Uh, I came up empty. I just, I, you know, I didn't know what I, what to run, how to look for it. And we were very limited again, you know, yeah. parking tickets, you know, municipal court, things like that, city water and sewer, but not really a, a solid lead. Then when I went down to the constable's office, um, where I ended up working for about 15 years as a, uh, as assistant chief constable, but I went down to the constable's office and said, well, let me start checking county records. Maybe there's something there. And without knowing it, because it didn't become popular in law enforcement for about a, another decade, I was doing geographic profiling because I was entering the places where the bodies were found, the places where the girls were picked up, the places that we had key evidence, and to see if there was any link or pattern. Well, in doing so, I actually came up with a name, Albright. There was a Frederick Albright that owned property very close to where the girls were picked up and the dump sites, multiple properties. So I was like, yes, I've got him. This is great. (laughs) So I I ran his uh, uh, voter record and I found that he had just voted and I found his birth certificate and I said, well, he's older, but you know, this has got to be the guy. And then I found his death certificate. Ugh. That's what I said. Crushing. Even worse. <laughs> okay, so then okay, so then who's the next Albright, right? So, right. Somebody so, in their bloodline, who's next? Uh, yeah, you gotta figure out. If yeah. he's dead, yeah. you know, this is Chicago. Dead, you know, it's not Chicago. Dead yeah. men don't vote. So what is going on? Well, I looked a little further and found out that he did indeed have a son, a Charles Albright, a career criminal, a career con man, someone who had been convicted of sexual assault of a child and someone that basically when his parents passed away, assumed his father's identity. He took all of his social security and his checks and cashed them. Now it explains where the cash is coming from. Um, the, The properties, he assumed all the properties. So now we're matching properties with kill locations and dump sites. Um, so it's all starting to, to kind of fall together here. Um, and we, we even have a picture from his arrest records that now we can show women. Well, in the midst of all this, wow, we might are, you know, we might have the guy and tying back to kind of what Veronica's story was months earlier. She said she was taken to a small white house, a wooden frame house. It was way out in the country. It was outside of Oak Cliff. Well, that's exactly where he owned some property. Um, so now her story really came into vogue and, and it made sense. Her hiding in, in the sewer uh, line, um, her being covered with mud. So now I start saying, oh my gosh, we had a witness to the murder two months ago. And in the midst of all this, we have a deputy constable come by. So you talk about everything happening Just at happening once. at one time. Like and he that. said, what are you doing? And so I told him and he said, Albright, I know that name. And I'm like, how do you know that name? He said, well, a woman called weeks ago and said um, she thought she knew who the killer was because she dated a guy named Albright and he was fascinated with eyes and exacto knives and we're like why didn't you tell us and he said well there were hundreds thousands of calls coming in how do we know what's real what's not real and again you know today with the technology we have we can compare notes and cross-reference databases but back then it wasn't like that you know it was really based on personal relationships and so now we've got 
criminal records. We've got uh, uh, geographic records. We've got a picture that we can show on the street. This is going to be our killer. Okay. So now you've got all, everything you need. How did you close in and how did you know it was him and, and how did that how did that go? So we went to homicide. I, I presented my three ring binder, okay. right? With right. all of the notes, everything dating okay. back from December, Veronica's story. I tried showing him connecting the dots. Remember, we had homicide involved in this, we had the FBI involved, and it was a street cop right. that came forward and broke the case. Really, really unusual. Matter of fact, it's only happened a couple times in the history of America. And so I had, like I said, been keeping meticulous notes and said, yeah. look, this is why I think this guy is the killer. They said, let's talk to a judge, see if we can get a warrant. We woke a judge up. We got a warrant. Uh, we got the tactical team together um, about two in the morning. Uh, we raided the house with stun grenades, literally blew him out of his bed with his live-in wife uh, and arrested him that night. And the tactical sergeant brought him out and turned him over to me and said, hey, John, this is your collar. You deserve it. And I put him in my car. And let me tell you, Brandy, that was eerie. Having oh. a big, strong okay. serial killer in your back seat, and you look into his eyes, and they're absolutely dead. They're like slate. They're like gray, black, no life. I mean, just that one of the eeriest things you could ever imagine. And this guy was such a sociopath, he would laugh and be friends with people on the street and babysit their children. At the same time, he was be uh, beating, mm -hmm. raping, mm -hmm. torturing, and murdering women. Did he say anything in the car? He was pretty quiet. And I, okay. you know, I really didn't want to try to elicit that much. No, at that time. I'm just curious if he yeah. said anything or made yeah. references to anything. Or uh, just... He made a, a, a reference to like, it's over, you know, okay. that type thing. Uh, but we, we both knew. I mean, we both yeah. knew that was it. And literally, for one of the only times in my career, I sat in the front seat of the squad car. The prisoner was handcuffed and buckled in the back. And I kept my hand on my gun the entire time. I don't blame because you. Because I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, I'm not losing these eyes. I would have actually asked someone to ride with me. I'd be like, come on, I need a, someone else needs to come in here. But I, well, I, when you said, I can't, you know, Brandy, I can't tell you what it was like. I thought you were going to tell me you were feeling just so... You know, I, I feel like you made this arrest, right? You solved it. You did this. And now you've got him. And now he's in the car with you. And now it's just like, is it this feeling of like, I've done it. It's over. Or like, I can't wait to get this guy out of my car. No, it thing, was you know? more like, you know, I've been a cop for a long time. I yeah. know how the criminal justice system is. I know I've seen so many people, murderers and everybody you can imagine, yeah. get off on technicalities or the prosecution, you know, drop the ball or there, there's so many things. So my thing was step one is done. We've got the guy. We've got the, him off the street. No more women are going to get killed, right? Yeah. But there's a long way to go in the process. And one of the things that we did find in collecting evidence at night, kind of that put a nice bow on the case, is we found hairs in his car and in his vacuum cleaner in his living room okay. that matched hairs from the victim 
at the crime scene. And so, you know, uh, all through the case, you're worried about, is it going to get thrown out? Is there going to be a technicality? Even when you have strong evidence, because that was the early days of DNA. Right. 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 So even when you have strong evidence like that, we were just so worried. Talking to the jurors later, though, they said, no, we we had no question at all. We were convicting the guy long before that came, but finding those hairs in all those places. And and let me tell you, the deal. Yeah. Yeah. One, one thing you're, you're asking about being euphoric. So after yeah. the, the verdict. Okay, yeah. So let's I, talk I, about the trial. I was I was really, really excited. Let yeah. me just tell you, I was yeah. so excited about it. I was so happy. I came home. We got the killer. He got convicted. Everything was great. My son, my little six-year-old son at the time, mm-hmm. um, came up to me and said, Dad, did, did you get him? And I said, yes, we did. He's never, he was convicted of, of life imprisonment. He's never going to hurt anybody again. And my son just turned to me and said, and did you bring the girls back? So in law enforcement, I mean, that's one of those things. Sometimes even when you're so excited and so happy, reality hits you in the face. And reality for me was my six-year-old. And I had to sit there and explain, yes, the bad guy's in jail, but no, we can't bring the girls back. I had that same conversation with my daughter when I lost my dad two years ago. So I know when they ask questions of those things, and I can see it in your eyes, how (laughs) difficult that was. And I... I feel you on that because even when I talk about on my, on our show, um, you just, you, it's reality and somebody feels that pain. Those girls had families. They were, you know, they were moms, they had children and people that loved them. And so you have this ability to get bad people off the streets, but you don't have the ability to make things better for you know, necessarily in the long run, but you gave them answers. You gave them closure. You helped the people of Oak Cliff. So the, how, the trial, was there just something in that trial that just sealed his deal? What was the trial like? Was it a big, was it a circus? Was it not? Did people not know much about him? What, what was no, the vibe? It, 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 you know, the publicity around it was uh, phenomenal. I mean, this had been a case that had been headline news for months, um, continued to be headline news all the way up to the trial. Uh, the courtroom was packed. Um, uh, I remember testifying for just a, an excruciating long period of time. And, and for me, one of the happier moments, because again, people need to realize they, they see us in our vest and they see us in our uniform and they see us out there and, and officers do the most amazing and heroic things. And yet you still need to realize they're human yeah. and they have these emotions. And I could tell you during the trial, I, the, the defense kept coming at me and coming at me. And, you know, I, I, I had my notebook and I had my notes and I had my story down and, you know, fact after fact after fact. And at one point he just got frustrated and threw his arms up and said, I can't do anything with this Boy Scout. <laughs> and and that kind of really made me feel good yes. because it was even, you know, the defendant, You had done your homework. Yeah, you the had, defendant's yeah. attorney saying, <laughs> yeah. I can't break this guy. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was really rewarding personally that 
everything had come together. And at that point, I started feeling better about the trial. You know, you never know what a jury's going to do. Right. You never know what they're thinking. You know, you never know which way their kind of mind is set. And so you're always apprehensive. But it was at that moment that I started feeling a little bit better that we were moving down the right track. And the prosecutors uh, were absolutely phenomenal. Dan Haygood, Toby Shook did a great job of leading that jury down the path, humanizing the women. Yes. Uh, that they were mothers, daughters, sisters, that, yes. you know, they, they, some of them had lived in the area, grew up in the area, that they had friends. And I think that was a big part of it. When you can humanize the victims and show the cold, blooded killing machine that that serial killer is, I think the jury really gets a accurate portrayal of what's going on. And this guy was a, a lifelong sociopath. I mean, from, from, you know, eight years old, 10 years old of killing animals. And he was faking transcripts, right? Then he became a teacher in Dallas, you know, with the forged transcripts, with the forged transcripts. So this wasn't something he just happened to fall into one day. This was a life because we talk about sociopaths, you know, and just their ability to get people close to them, but their intention is not good. And, and so it was a it was I feel like just reading about this guy and then and what I have read about him it was just bound to happen at some point I feel like it was it was almost like the excitement wasn't enough he had to go even further to keep that adrenaline and that and I mean what do you what do you call that no that's exactly right he had to feed that high yeah right he had to feed that high and so when picking up prostitutes and having sex with them wasn't enough then the girls told us that he would pay them extra money to beat them to torture them. If they screamed louder, they got extra money. If they did certain things, they got extra money. He had a torture rack built on the wall of one of his houses. So this is not someone, like you said, that woke up one day and said, I'll start killing people. This was a lifetime of experiences that was culminating with his you know, high, which is not just having sex with these women and torturing and beating them, it's killing them. And then to make it worse, the most degrading thing of all, what, I mean, what else can you do? They're dead. So then he surgically removes their eyes, takes that from them so he can possess it. So he can possess them totally. And then he takes their body and displays it out on the street for all to see. So it was about power. It was about control. It was about him being in charge and that these women were absolutely nothing to him. Were the eyeballs ever found? No. We never found the eyeballs. And after I wrote the book, The Eyeball Killer, um, and did, you know, media on it, and literally I've been doing media on it for 30 years, um, every once in a while we'll get someone that calls and says, I think I know where the eyeballs are. And 99% of the time I don't take a second look at it, but I can tell you there's been once or twice that I said, oh my God, I never thought about that. Let me go check. But no, we've never found them. Interesting. Um, so what was the verdict? 
The verdict was guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison. Uh, he has spent uh, all of his final years in prison, and he just passed away last summer. Um, so I think the uh, thing that, you know, people over the years have come up to me and said, well, how do you know you had the right guy, right? There's always, you know, naysayers out there. Well, one, I knew it, and all the evidence showed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hairs and fibers yes. proved it beyond a doubt. And you know what? To me, the biggest thing was no more women were killed. Yeah, it's interesting, and right? no more women lost their eyes. Yeah. yeah. So, gosh, that just this case, <laughs> you know, and I feel like this is going to be a really great one for people listening because um, as you know, people say the first serial killer of Dallas, who was that? Who is that? So this is going to be actually, even, even though this happened in the nineties, this is actually going to be very new for some people who maybe were growing up in the nineties and maybe they listen to true crime now. So, and then you just having a big, big hand in it. And now instead of your officer uniform, I'm looking at you and you are wearing your Casaro winery and vineyard shirt. So, um, like I mentioned earlier, we are here in your beautiful winery. Um, and so tell me about it. What got you into winemaking? Was it passion? Was please tell us. I, I've been wine, making wine for a long time, just as a hobby. And I would make batches and send it to friends and family and clients. Uh, my family is from Italy. My grandfather from Sicily, my grandmother from Naples. Uh, he did that uh, when he came to this country. Um, I've always loved making wine. And in 2015, uh, my wife and I took a trip to Napa, a nice diversion from uh, all of the murder and mayhem. And we saw the vines and we said, we've got property. Let's put some vines in. And some vines became 500 and then a thousand and then 2000. And before you know it, she said, we've got to do something and and open a tasting room. And uh, so we opened our tasting room in 2019 and have been very blessed. It's been very well accepted. We're only about 20 minutes south of downtown Dallas. We have tons of Dallas, Fort Worth, Arlington folks that come by as well as folks in Ellis County. And we have folks that come up from Austin and San Antonio and stuff. Um, We We've got three acres of property here right on a creek, beautiful open outdoor space where we have live music and great award-winning wine that I'm very, very proud of. Well, John, I've had several of your wines (laughs) and they are, and you can ask Chris, I'm like, oh, this just... I, t- I told you this last time I saw you, I taste the passion in your wine. I taste that Italian love. I, I, I just do. And in it, I just want you to know it comes across. Well, thank just you. From a, just from a person who well, drinks it, it comes across. And we hoping to be your hometown winery, right? You don't yes. live far from here. No. So that's what we want to be. Because Sorrow yeah. wants to be the hometown winery yes. of true crime and wine. So, yes. And, and we've been very, very blessed over the years. Um, I make wine so that people can drink it, enjoy it. I hope they love it. We have 15 different varietals. Um, and, they, and I tell them, I, do wine, I did wine tastings all weekend for birthday parties and anniversaries and stuff. And I said, you don't have to like all of them. (laughs) If you like one, if you find one that you really enjoy and it makes you happy, 
That's what I want to hear. So whatever we're drinking today is making me pretty happy because it <laughs> tastes delicious. So what are we drinking today? So we're drinking the Texano Superiore, uh, which translates into super uh, Texan. Okay. So it's my version of a super tux- Tuscan. We only use Texas grapes, and our tagline is Texas wine with Italian tradition. And so I took our Sangiovese, which is a base Italian grape um, for a super Tuscan, and blue blended it with our Cabernet, which is a traditional way to make a Super Tuscan, and experimented for like, I don't know, six or eight months trying to get wow. the blending exactly right. And uh, I think we hit it pretty well right out of the box. Um, that Superiore has won three gold medals. Uh, we're really, really happy with it. But even more importantly, uh, folks here at the winery enjoy drinking it. And they love coming in and trying to say it. Texano Superiore, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just like our multiple they love coming in, saying the Italian names, and okay. ordering it. That's so cool. Okay, so we know October is Texas Wine Month. It is coming up. Anything big going on here at Casaro that people need to check out? We have a huge month coming up. Okay. It is our Wine Club Month. We have Wine Club okay. festivities throughout the month. Uh, we have a jazz duet that's playing. We have a 24-piece steel drum band that's playing October 17th. Cousins Maine Lobster is out here. Ooh. The 29th, we've got a classic rock and roll band playing out here and then live music every Friday and Saturday in addition to it and the North Texas Wine Trail. I mean literally every day all month we've got something going on at Casaro. A lot of it involves outdoor space. Even on the 24th we're bringing some animals out here that you can pet and play with and stuff. We did it a couple years ago. People loved it. Spider monkeys and kangaroos and stuff <laughs> like that. Amazing. Literally every, every weekend we're open Thursday through Sunday Thursday and Friday 4 to 10 okay. Saturday noon to 10 and Sunday 2 to 6 but throughout October it's an absolutely huge month for us. Yeah. The weather should be spectacular and uh, come out and enjoy some wine. Well, we know we'll be back. We're, uh, <laughs> we've made already a few trips out here, so we know we know we're coming back. And guys, the outdoor space because we know people are still COVID conscious, and you know. But y'all, I'm telling you, you walk in and you feel the Italian vibe. You see the, just the walls, the pictures. Tell me about the pictures, the paintings. A lot of the paintings I brought yes. from Italy. You know, I love going to Italy. I've gone there many, many times. I have friends that are winemakers in Italy too, and I go and play with them and try to learn. Right, I try yeah. to learn as much yeah. as I can. We try to do it old world style and make love really it. tier one wines. And I go over there and practice and learn. And so I bring the paintings back from Italy, so they're original. All of the pictures in the tasting room are photos. That I took in Rome, Tuscany, the Amalfi Coast, Positano, Sorrento. I want people to feel it. The meats and cheeses um, are imported. All of our olive oil, all of our balsamic is imported. And as far as uh, wine, for the first time because of COVID and the tough time they've had in Italy, I reached out to my friends, uh, had them send me some of their wine, and we're going to have a Tuscan wine night in December. The only place in the world that you can buy this Tuscan wine is their winery in Tuscany and ours in Ovilla. So again, we have so many events coming up, October, November, December. Wow. We invite people to come out. Okay, so I'll be here in December (laughs) and I'll be taking some of those bottles. That's amazing. Um, That's just so cool. And um, again, the outside space, 
you can bring your kids, the yep. family, come and enjoy. You guys have pizza. You make your own pizza here, which goes really well with the, um, what did I have? The Tempranillo that yep. night? Yep. Uh, yeah. So the pizza, the environment, just the vibe, the music, the outdoor, the the butterfly garden that I just love out there. Guys, there's just so much space, so much area for the kids to run around. So you definitely make this like home. Um, and, and I, and I feel that when I walk in here, so I know anybody that visits probably feels the same. Exact and, way. and that's what we hear, you know, oh my gosh, you make us feel like we're at home, you know, growing up in an Italian family. That's the feeling I had every time I'm at my grandparents' house, every time we're at friends' house, they welcome us in. When I go to Italy and they just break out the wine and the meat yeah. and cheese, they're not asking for anything. They're saying, enjoy our life, experience yeah. our life. And that's what we try to do here. And it's great seeing family families out here enjoying the music at the gazebos at the fire pit okay yes. it's almost time brandy <laughs> it is to, almost. to break out the s'mores <laughs> we were talking about this last time the s'mores are the best the fire pit just is literally right smack dab in the middle of this beautiful acreage you have out here guys i'm telling you come to casaro winery John is here. Your family runs this. You, you, you know, if they need to say hi to you or talk, I mean, it's just, it's family run, family owned, family environment. And I dig it, John. I think it's, I think it's beautiful. So I love what you've done. Well, thank you. You should be very proud. And I don't, again, I don't know how you do everything you do. <laughs> um, I don't know who keeps your schedule or has to play in all of your information, but cheers to that person. <laughs> cheers to that person Salute. as well. Salute. Okay, friends. Um, would you like to share anything else before we go? No, I think that's great. We covered true crime. We, we covered wine. It sounds like the title a, of the show, the right? The best of both of my worlds, I'll <laughs> tell you that. Well, we always close the show with just saying, until next time, friends, stay safe, have fun, and cheers to next time. 